and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. I think you all know me. I'm Jason Barnard. Really, the artists just get better and better on the show. I've got Mike Pender here, uh, formerly of The Searchers, but really the voice of The Searchers, and it's a huge honour to have him here today. He's written an absolutely fantastic book covering his whole life, especially his times in The Searchers, and, and really... Mike, it's an opportunity to tell your side of the story. Well, yeah, I think you've got to. I've always thought about doing uh, a thing like this. Obviously, over 50 years, you, you do get times when you sit in a hotel or you sit at home or you sit in a dressing room and somebody brings the, brings it up saying, Mike, when are you going to write a, a biography? Or I should say an autobiography, yeah. And, of course, you think seriously about doing it. You've got to go back sort of 20-odd years to the time when I first started thinking about doing an autobiography. But I never got round to doing it until about three or four years ago. And finally, last year, got to the publishing stage and we got it sorted out. And speaking to a friend I've got in publishing, he, he actually suggested that I should actually publish it myself. Because if you do, he said, if you do it your way and publish it yourself, you get exactly what you want in the book, photograph-wise and text-wise. So I thought, right, I want to see the book the way I imagine it and the way people will like it. And the reviews have actually been very, very good. What I found from, from reading uh, the search for myself is that you get the opportunities to share information about things that certainly I didn't know, even though I'm very familiar with the 60s. We opened with uh, sweets for my sweet, but um, a version from uh, the Iron Door. Everyone speaks about the Beatles and the Cavern, but really it seemed to be the searchers and um, the Iron Door. Well, that's, that was our home, really, for a long time. The manager we had for a short time while we were still in Liverpool before we went to London, a guy called Les Ackley, and he actually run the Iron Door, and he also looked after us. He ended up calling the Iron Door the home of the searches because we played so often there. Talking about the song Sweets from a Sweet, I can remember we actually recorded one of those acetate, like a demo record, in the Iron Door. We did about ten songs, and it was just the, the songs that we had in the set at the time. Just obviously all our rock and roll songs that we liked in Liverpool. Some of the guy, um, Holy Gully, different songs that each member of the band liked. And obviously one of them was Sweets from a Sweet, which we picked up off, off an old Drifters album, which was found by Chris. We sort of made that our own, put it in the set. And Tony Hatch came up to Liverpool and he heard the acetate, he liked the song. After our second stint, as it were, in the Star Club in Hamburg, when we came back to Liverpool, Tony Hatch was uh, more or less ready and waiting for us to take us to London. After recording that song, within, what, six to eight weeks, it was shooting up the charts to number one. Absolutely, you know, overnight success. It is amazing to hear how fast things went in those days. And you mentioned the Star Club, and our next track is actually from uh, Live at the Star Club. I'm not sure this uh, was released at the time. It's certainly um, come out since then as a, a bonus track. I've got uh, a version of uh, Beautiful Dreamer. <laughs> oh, beautiful Dreamer. Believe it or not, I first heard the Beatles singing this, actually, in the cavern. Um, I don't know why it just more or less stuck with me, you know. And uh, we just started to do it as well. Uh, groups were like that in Liverpool, you know. You get sort of half a dozen groups doing very similar songs. Like every group that I knew did Some Other Guy. Yeah. And the Richie Barrett song. Um, it was just one of those songs that everybody sort of made their own. Beatles did it, we did it, Jerry and the Pacemakers did it, and a host of other groups did it. And Beautiful Dreamer was so different than the way it, the way it was originally. Like, it was, it was very slow. Beautiful Dreamer. I remember Roy Orbison did um, a version of it, right. and his is totally different to the way we did it. Um, so, you know, you, you did that with songs. You tried to make them a little bit different. And um, that, was, that was one of the songs we did at the time, yeah. <laughs>
That was The Searchers and Beautiful Dreamer live at the Star Club. I'll be playing a lot of tracks today which are highlights from The Searchers career, but um, a few of them I'll want to kind of mix it up a bit and and play uh, some different versions. And then the next one being arguably the biggest Searchers track. I mean, what what a song, uh, Needles and Pins. The version I've got is from uh, the Swedish Radio Sessions album. I think this is from 1965, this version. But um, was that um, a track that Chris found again? Well, no, we all actually found that song, you know. We were, we happened to hear um, Cliff Benton, the Rebel Rousers, at the Star Club, and they were actually singing it. But um, his version was totally different to the way we did it. His phrasing and everything is different to, to the way I sang it. But um, I thought, what a great song, what great words. It's like one of those songs that, that uh, people associate with. It's like a story, a love story. You, you meet someone, you, you break up, you see her again. It's all that, isn't it? And people can associate with that. And this is what I thought when we actually found the song. Although we knew about it, we actually got uh, Jackie D. Shannon's version, um, mm. which was uh, like a, a more, more or less an acoustic type version, as I recall. She's got that sort of um, unique voice, a bit of hoarseness there, as, as well as sort of that, that nice sort of true American twang on it. And it was a pretty good version, but I, always, I felt, I remember saying to Chris Curtis, we can sort of do that totally different. And, and I think we did. I can remember at Pie Records, after we'd had the success of uh, Sweets My Sweet and Sugar and Spice, we almost had to fight them to get that released because the powers that be at Pie Records, like Chairman uh, Louis Benjamin and people like that, they obviously felt that we should release another type. Mm. Sweets for My Sweet, Sugar and Spice song. Sugary, boppy, poppy. Mm. But we said, no, no, we've got to change slightly. Don't give the fans something very similar. They've heard that sort of that type of music. Let's change and do something a little bit different, a little bit heavier, something with a story, something which has got more soul in it. And Tony Hatch agreed with us, and that's how we got Needles and Pins released, after sort of uh, a bit of a, a bit of a what to do with Pi Records. But anyway, we, we were proved right, definitely. Absolutely. And was that your second number one? It was the second number one. Sugar and Spice never quite made it to number one. In those days, we had um, all those musical papers, didn't we, like Disc, mm. Record Mirror, Musical Express, a couple of others. And in a couple of those uh, musical papers, Sugar and Spice got to number one, but they balanced it out. You had to be number one in all four or five musical papers. Mm. Um, and if you weren't, you know, you sort of had to be satisfied with number two. But anyway, it was big enough, wasn't it? But yes, Needles and Pins was the second one, followed by Don't Throw Your Love Away. And we'll be playing that after Needles and Pins. Right. One, two, three. I saw her face, it was the face I loved And I knew I had to run away And get down on my knees and pray That they go away, but still they begin Needles and pins Because of all my pride The tears I got Thank you. 
That was Needles and Pins, and as Mike was talking about, now we'll have uh, Don't Throw Your Love Away. This is another perfect example of you guys in the searches taking um, a relatively obscure US song, but really putting your own mark on it, giving it a real sort of commercial edge and improving on that original. Yeah, that's what you had to do, and that's what we did with a lot of those songs. Um, I remember sitting in Pi Studios uh, with a bunch of records, uh, 45 records that just came in from America. The Pi people were sitting there with us and say, "Look, let's have a, let's go through these and see if we can find the next single here." Because obviously, after having needles and pins, you think, "Ah, we're going to find a song better than that." I don't think so. But anyway, we were, we were going through them and um, we come to this one by the Orlons. We'd heard the the A side on the radio and we heard the that was their latest song. We flipped it over and what's on the other side? But don't throw it away. We thought. Let's have a listen to that because we like the sound of them, the harmonies and that. Um, these were a black American group, of course, mm. um, as I recall. And um, we played Don't Tell You Love Way Through. We sat there. That's quite a nice song. And Chris said, yeah, we can get some uh, get some nice harmonies on that. It's got a nice melodic tone to it. Just have nice guitars behind the, the voices. Nothing sort of spectacular on guitars, just a nice sort of rhythm. Although it, it did have the usual figure that we put in whereby you've got needles and pins, which, which is da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and um, the Sweet Smells Fruit, which is did-did-did-did-did, and Sugar and Spice, da-da-da-da, mm. they've all got little guitar figures in. And so we found one for, obviously, Don't Throw Your Love Away. How did that go now? It was da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, sort of on uh, harmony strings. And we put that on, obviously, because that's what people expected of us, uh, along with the harmonies, a bit of jangly guitar. And the next thing you know, we've got another number one. song will be uh, When You Walk In The Room and I'll be playing a version from uh, 1965 BBC session. In this period, uh, Tony left and Frank joined and I think this was Frank's first um, performance right. of the group. 1964, um, which is surprising really, people can't get over that. After only 12 months into our careers as one of the biggest recording acts or groups, if you like, of that period, one of the members decided to leave. But it just so happens that you do get that with groups. Unfortunately, you've got four people, four different egos, four different personalities. And because that's what we were, really. I mean, even though John didn't sing at all or played rhythm guitar, Tony, Chris and myself, we were more or less three lead singers, really, in the band. And we all had our own set of fans. 
probably a bit like the Beatles, you know, John, Paul and George, they all probably had different sort of sets of fans who each group of fans liked one individual. That's a good way to build a big fan base up. Also, it's great when you're selling records because you've got so many people who love the group because there's three or four likable characters in that group and it certainly bunks up the sales. But um, it happens, Tony decided he wanted to leave Things weren't too good in the band, as I recall. Certainly, Tony and Chris weren't getting on together. Chris had had met uh, Frank Allen, and they became really good pals, uh, really good friends, really. And, you know, you could tell that uh, whether John or I liked it or not, Chris was going to get Frank into the band. This is what happened. And so, 1964, just before we recorded uh, When You Walk in the Room, Frank joined the band. He was actually playing bass on that record. Now, recently returned to Britain from a tour of America is a top Liverpool team. With one of their hit songs, When You Walk in the Room, here are The Searchers. I can feel a new expression on my face. I can feel a blown sensation taking place. I can hear the guitar playing lovely tunes. When You Walk in the Room BBC session, our next track is The Searchers and Love Potion Number 9. Mike, that song broke really, really big in the States, didn't it? Yes, it did, actually. Again, it was quite a surprise. I can remember being in Pi Studios doing a recording session. We, we just got a sort of telegram, whatever you want to call it, and one of the guys come down from the offices upstairs and said, you guys are number one in America with Love Potion Number 9. Actually, I tell everyone it was number one, but it was about, I think it was number two. Absolutely brilliant. You know, in Billboard, if you're number two, it's almost like number one. Mm. Um, and it was the biggest selling record we had in America. And it come uh, late in our careers. I think what it was, it was such an American type song that if you listen to the lyrics, it's all about New York. It's all about America. It's got that sort of American thing about it. Uh, mentions American uh, streets. Uh, so Americans took it to the hearts and just went out and bought it. And even today, you know, I remember being in America earlier this year. And that's one of the songs they were shouting out. Hey, come on, Mike, love potion number nine. And it's one of those songs that always goes down well. Yeah, it even goes down very well here. Good song. A unique song, if you like. And it's been recorded by quite a few other people over the years, as I recall. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap, too. She's got a bad
Almost number one, or practically number one in the States there, Love Potion number nine by The Searchers. We've got Mike Pender here, the sound of The Searchers, really, and he's got a fantastic book out, The Search for Myself and The Origins of The Searchers. It's a really, really fantastic read. Our next song, again, is by The Searchers, and it's What Have They Done to the Rain. Um, this is another BBC session. This really showed the sort of folks, side to the group and you know it really stood the band apart from many of your peers well yeah i think this told a story about the band you know we weren't steeped in rock and roll all the time we did like the other side of of the coin if you like and we did like the country style folk people chris had such a vast record collection he had all kinds of records i always remember playing this song written by uh, malvina reynolds um, a lady from california I've never heard a version, actually. The version we went by was um, uh, John Baez, who did a great version of it. And we thought, you know, what a lovely song. What have they done to the rain? And it's one of those songs where you get carried away with the melody and you don't pay too, too much attention to, to the words. But really, I sort of missed what it, what, the, what it was all about when we first heard it. And it wasn't until we were actually recording the song that we were talking about it. And it's, um, it's more or less like a protest song. And it's, it's like what was happening in the world or what could happen if things went too far. It was a lovely song, and it still gets requests today. Right now on Top of the Pops, we feature our stars, The Searchers. And they provide the pitter-patter of little beats for the song called What Have They Done to the Rain? Just a little rain dodging through the crotchets and quavers there with what have they done to the rain next mike um, i've chosen he's got no love and this was uh, written uh, by you and the band and uh, the feels to a little bit of a stones influence on this of course um, we, i remember we were on tour in, with the stones uh, in australia 1966 and that was the year that chris left after in fact when we got back from that tour chris had already decided he was going to leave and thank God too much for him. Because when we were on that tour in Australia, the Stones was, was just coming through into to being so big. And of course, Mick on stage, Mick Jagger, was getting all the applause and all the plaudits and, and the screams and whatever. And Chris felt, you know, we, we were like that just to, like a couple of years ago. We were in that position. You know, in this game, I think you have to realise that if you're at the top, you can't stay there. Different people come along, different acts come along. There's always going to be somebody else who's better than you. 
and you have to accept that sooner or later you're going to be sort of slipping down the, uh, the ladder a little bit, you know. But anyway, getting back to what we talked about, the song, um, He's Got No Love, I had an idea. Uh, we were on the coach one day, and the Stones had their single out with a certain guitar riff on that I sort of got the idea that we could use on, not the exact one that they were playing, but something very, very similar. I played it to Chris, the, the guitar figure. I said, look, you know, it's that sort of slide thing could sort of do some. What do you think about writing a song, sort of, mm, I lost my love, mm, mm, that thing. I have to say that Chris did write uh, like 95% of the lyrics for this song. It was, uh, it was my idea and my sort of uh, melody, if you like, Chris's uh, lyrics. And it was that good that Tony Hatch said, why don't we do this for the next single? It's the only song written by members of the band that actually got into the charts. I think got to number 14 or 15 or something like that. I was over the moon, actually. I thought, wow, I've actually sat down and worked out how to play a song, put it together. Chris has added most of the lyrics. And here we are with a single being played on the radio, and it's got into the top 20. So I put that as a feather in my cap, actually. And it was quite strange when you think that shortly afterwards, Chris decided to leave. kind of saying and it comes across in the book was you know an absolute driving force of the band in in that early period he was the driving force of the band didn't that set you back a little bit a little bit a big bit i think we realized then that the the actual recording side of our careers was probably at an end next we have popcorn double feature which is one of my favorite singles by the searchers a single from 1967 that was a minor hit but again I think you really, really improved on the original track. Well, do you know what? I can't remember the original track. Um, obviously, we got it from somewhere and there wasn't an original record of it. But that's one of the songs, obviously, after us being so big and having so many hits. It wasn't a song that really grabbed me, actually. But you get songs off it too, and you get record companies who say, look, give it a try. Let's, let's go and do it. Yep. Yeah. Let's go in the studio and put it down, Popcorn Double Feature. You never know. It just might be a quirky type song that gets in the charts. And so you go do it and you do the best job you can. And a lot of people liked it. It's never been one of my favorites. And it's a song that I've never really gone on stage and done over the years 
obviously there's there's going to be people who like it and uh, Jason you're one of them <laughs> Everybody's going through changes Everybody's got a bag of his own Everybody's talking about places Can only be found in the greater unknown People are flying, babies are crying Don't nobody care at all There's love and there's laughter And good things come after Just follow the dancing Another song I'm very fond of, this time when you uh, joined Liberty, was the Umbrella Man single, and that, I think that was your first single on Liberty, and again, I think it's a really, really nice song, but again, yeah. it just didn't make the charts for some reason. Again, it's like, sort of, let's give it a try. We listen to the demo, or the actual record of it, and you think, Umbrella Man, yeah, maybe, who knows? Um, and we did a, a couple of songs, Shoot Em Up Bay was another song we did uh, with Liberty, uh, I didn't mind that one so much, but Umbrella Man, again, never been one of my favourites. It's one of those quirky songs that, that you do because you're obliged to do it. Go in the studio, you've got nothing else, let's do it, yeah. Record company said they like it, so you do it. It's one of those songs, again, uh, a quirky song, and some people like it, and not a lot of people remember it.
I know Jeff Christie of uh, Christie and the 60s he was in a band called The Outer Limits. Yeah. He sent me an acetate, a version that the searchers did of a track of his called Great Train Robbery. Yes. Do you remember that? And have you got I any? It, yeah. I remember somebody sending the tape or the acetate or whatever it was. And I thought, well, it's pretty novel, actually. Great Train Robbery, because there actually has been a Great Train Robbery, you know, and people can associate with it. Whether it was good enough to ever be a single, I don't know, but we did record it, probably because I was uh, I was, it was into trains in a big way. As a kid, I was a train spotter, and I've always loved British steam locomotives. And even today, I still have a huge train set at home in my house. But it was one of those songs that we thought, well, let's give it a go, and we recorded it. And it was a pretty good song, actually. Mm. Uh, the, the, guy, the guy wrote a pretty good song. It's certainly one of those moments I remember. And it was it was pretty good track. I was just a boy of ten when it happened. Though they talk about it still today. I remember reading headlines in the paper. and Desdemona, uh, and you signed to RCA in 1972, and um, that was a hit in the US. Really yeah, strong Desdemona, track. I like that track. Um, had a certain sort of sound about it. I thought it suited our sound, and as you say, it did all right in America, but uh, obviously, if it did anything, it scraped in the bottom of the charts, and that was it. Again, a suggestion to us.
Next, Mike, I'd like to play Solitaire, and uh, I think this is your best vocal. It's very kind of you to say that, and in fact, a lot of people do say that. It's almost um, a, a solo recording this, when you think about it. I remember the, the, they got the backing track provided by some beautiful uh, instrument players, violins and, and, and string quartet and piano and whatever, to make a really nice uh, backing track. And of course, I put the vocals on. You know, you, you, you do a few takes when you're doing something like this because you want it to be absolutely perfect. It's such a nice sort of song, written by Neil Sedaka, of course but also recorded by Andy Williams. And I can remember at uh, one of the BBC studios when we were trying to promote the song, Neil Sedaka was actually there. Uh, we were introduced to him, and uh, he actually said, you know, he did a great version. But with Andy Williams doing it, he got all the, the plaudits, as it were, and his record sold um, a lot more than we did. And we missed out, really, because um, it's down to promotion. It's down to plugs. It's down to BBC. It's the place you get on the radio. If you don't get enough, people don't hear it, and they only hear the Andy Williams version. Sadly, it's been the story of our lives. There was a man A lonely man Who lost his love Through his And yeah. 
I'd like to play um, one of my favourite tracks from the uh, the Sire albums that you did, Hearts in Her Eyes, I think. Hearts that in Her Eyes. Oh, that was a good song. I love that song. Nice guitar riffs in it, nice harmonies in it, good story. And Sire, I think, at the time, thought they were going to have a big hit with it. But it wasn't to be again. So lots of people said they loved it, and lots of people said it should have been a hit, but it wasn't. It's a song that I do today, yeah, and it's a song that uh, we get lots of requests for. So we keep it in the set. Hearts in Eyes. Moving to the, the mid-80s, Mike, you basically left the searches and started Mike Pender's searches. And I'd, I'd like to play um, Mike Pender's searches version of Take Me For What I'm Worth, which I think is a, a lovely version of the searches original from 65. Yeah, it was a good song, that Take Me For What I'm Worth. It still goes down very well in America. An American song written by an American guy. I like the song. It's got a good story, a nice little guitar break. Probably made it my own, really, Take Me For What I'm Worth. Pounding a 
Pender Search's version of Take Me For I'm Worth. And uh, our penultimate track here today is uh, Mike Pender and the Class of 64 falling apart at the seams. And I wanted to, to play this because it kind of really highlighted the, the strong bonds you have with many of the artists from that era. And you do a lot of shows and uh, tours yeah. around the country. Yeah, I mean, people who were sort of there when we were making it in Liverpool, people from groups like the, the Hideaways, Bill Kingsley from Mersey Beats, he actually produced that record. And you've got a good friend of mine, Frankie O'Connor, who was with the Hideaways. He's on that, on that album as well, singing it. They invited me on to, to do this album, actually. Um, I remember going to the studio in Liverpool, and uh, I liked the song, written by uh, a couple of good friends of mine in Liverpool, Falling Apart at the Seams. Um, but I do like the sound we got on the record. So, yeah, let's play it. <laughs> Before I break down and cry 
Fantastic. That was Mike Pender there in Class of 64, Falling Apart at the Seams. And Mike, we have our final track today. The song that I wanted to play, I hope you like it, the Searchers version of For What It's Worth from the uh, the Searchers uh, box set. Yeah, For What It's Worth, one of those songs again, been sort of buried in obscurity. It's a Buffalo Springfield song, isn't it? As I recall, um, they originally did it. It's one of those songs that you always liked as you go through your career. But Buffalo Springfield, yeah, they were sort of um, one of the sort of beginnings of Crosby, Stills and Nash. And so, you know, anything like that, Crosby, Stills and Nash for me, one of my favourite groups in America, and that kind of thing which he went on to, uh, you think of groups like the Eagles, that's the kind of music I like. Somebody said to me, Mike, give us a few of your favourite songs that you want to hear. It would always be someone like that, um, the Eagles, Crosby, Stills and Nash, even as far back as Buffalo Springfield. That type of song. For my view, I think the searchers were integral in kind of forming that that American sound that the Birds and Buffalo Springfield and, and Crosby, Stills and Nash. So thank you. Well, well Jason is very kind of you to say that. It's nice to have been mentioned uh, somewhere along the line by those kind of people like Tom Petty, like the Birds. And it's nice to hear people say that maybe we somewhere along the line influenced those kind of people. And uh, I wish you all the best, not that you need it, with your fantastic book, Origins of the Searchers and the Search for Myself. Well, I hope um, whoever buys the book enjoys it. We've had great reviews on it. It is a story that's got a lot of truth in it. And it's got a lot of things that should be written about the Searchers, that people should know, that future generations, that they're going to read about it, that they're going to read how we formed and how we went on and how I left and started my own life and where I am today and obviously got to the point where I actually wrote this story. Cool, well thank you again Mike, Um, let's play for what it's worth. Going down 